Psalm 24 is our text. And for some reason, I want to keep calling it Psalm 25. I don't know why. So if you catch me in that, just uh, I don't think I've gone crazy. But Psalm 24, the topic, it's a messianic psalm that looks forward to the gates of Jerusalem being lifted up at the return of King Jesus to what he calls his holy hill. The title of our message, King of the Hill. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do love you and thank you for this opportunity to be together. As there was an anointing on the worship, we pray for an anointing on the teaching, that your Holy Spirit would attend it, that he would, by his grace, divide between our soul and our spirit and whisper to us about your love. I pray, Lord, that this psalm would ring in our ears and hearts the way it did originally, because it does involve us, as we'll see towards the end. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. And those who agreed said, amen. Ticker tape, thin strips of paper used for electronic printing of stock market quotes and sports scores. If you remember the movie The Sting, it was the machine that provided the results of the horse races that they were betting on. Invented by Edison, it got its name from the ticking sound the machines produced. They went obsolete in the 1960s. During the Statue of Liberty dedication in October 1886, office workers threw ticket tape out their windows and onto parade goers below. Thus was born the New York tradition of the ticker tape parade. Psalm 24 was written for a celebratory procession in Israel. It was written on the momentous occasion of King David returning the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. According to the account found in 1 Chronicles, David gathered all Israel. There were singers accompanied by instruments of music, stringed instruments, harps, and cymbals by raising the voice with resounding joy. And for his part, David whirled and played music before the Lord, meaning that he danced. The psalm was also prophetic. As we read it, you're going to see that it perfectly anticipated Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem at his first coming. Here's something really cool that substantiates that claim. The Mishnah is a collection of Jewish oral traditions. In it is a list of seven psalms, each of which would be recited in temple worship on a certain day of the week. Each day had its own particular psalm. The psalm for the first day of the week for Sunday was, you guessed it, Psalm 24. And that means that this psalm was being sung when Jesus entered Jerusalem on what we now call Palm Sunday. And so uh, without knowing it, they were fulfilling this prophecy. Now for us as futurists, Psalm 24 has not exhausted its fulfillment. It looks forward to the yet future second coming of Jesus to Jerusalem to establish his 1000 year kingdom of heaven on the earth, ruling over it as his king. While looking forward, Psalm 25 starts by looking back all the way back to creation and the book of Genesis. It reminds us that before we can join in the roar of the crowd at Jesus' second coming, we must be made right by believing him for what he accomplished at his first coming. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you are made right for the king's return. And number two, you are heard roaring at the king's return. Let's take a look at being made right in verses one through six. Why look back to Genesis? What does that have to do with Jesus' coming? Well, it has everything to do with it, obviously, and we're going to discover how as we look back with David. So let's read verses one and two. This is a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. 
David, obviously familiar with the Genesis account of special creation, where we read, God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. God made that firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. As creator, God has claimed to not just the earth, but here we see its fullness. Nothing is beyond his rightful ownership. But all of that, all of creation and all of its fullness was only so that God could create mankind. Those who dwell in the world God created are his. When our minds are drawn back to Genesis, a huge question is answered. Why is there so much suffering in the world? Just look around. Something has gone terribly wrong, whether you live in a small area like ours or in great metropolitan areas. If you didn't know better, you might think God has abdicated or abandoned his creation. In fact, non-believers feel comfortable deriding God for the tragedies and traumas that characterize life on earth. Elton John has a song in which he sings, if there's a God in heaven, what's he waiting for? If he can't hear the children, then he must see the war. It seems to me that he leads his lambs to the slaughterhouse and not the promised land. What is God waiting for? Well, he's waiting for Elton John, for one thing. And I don't mean that in a facetious way. Elton John is a sinner in the sense that he's without Christ. He's, as far as I know, unless something happened last night, he hasn't professed faith in Jesus Christ. And so the Lord is, we read about what he's going to do, what he's poised and ready to do to end suffering and trauma and tragedy and to bring in righteousness. But it involves a, a, a point in time at which there will be no more decision to be made for Christ. And quite honestly, men like Elton John, if they don't turn to Christ, they'll be lost for eternity. So what is God waiting for? He's waiting for you if you're not a believer and all those that deride him. It's not God's fault. God has solved the problem in his long suffering. He waits. So what does Genesis tell us? God put mankind in charge of creation. They immediately disobeyed God. Their tempter, Satan, thus became the God of this world in a sense. Tragedy and trauma are the result of mankind's sin, bringing death into God's perfect creation. Adam and Eve represented all their descendants, all of mankind. They had a choice. They had to have a choice or else there's no such thing as free will or even more, there's no such thing as love. You can't have love without free will. They chose badly, an understatement, but you get the idea. To suggest a limited analogy, don't take this too far, but I think you'll get it. They chose to be ruled by Scar instead of Mufasa. That's a time release joke. Scar. Who's, who's Mufasa? Anyway, Lion King, it's a grandparent thing. But anyway, it's only one of the most popular movies and Broadway shows of all time. Probably many of you saw Lion King in Fresno, right? I'm not going to ask. I didn't see it because I'm a Christian, but anyway, <laughs> I just quote it. Uh, far from abdicating or abandoning, God began to reveal a plan to redeem and restore creation, especially mankind. That plan involves both of the comings of Jesus to set things right. And so as the psalm begins, non-believers are assured and believers are reassured that God remains in charge. He hasn't abdicated what he created. He hasn't abandoned those he created. And so the psalm begins this way for one reason, so that people can't say, wait a minute, you're going to talk in a minute about the coming of the Messiah to rule the world. Where is that come? Where is the promise of that coming? As they mock in first and second Peter, 
And so David establishes that, let me tell you something, God is not abandoned or abdicated, and what I'm going to tell you next is really going to happen. And uh, so we're assured, we're reassured. Verse 3, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? Do you have a special place you'd like to go, maybe on vacation, and a particular place at that place? You probably do. Well, God has a special place, and he tells us over and over again in the scripture that it's Jerusalem the Temple Mount in particular. Psalm 87 says his foundation is in the holy mountain. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. We read in Psalm 132, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. When the Lord returns in his second coming, New Yorkers won't give him a ticker tape parade. He's not coming there. Jerusalem has that singular honor. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. You must meet all these prerequisites to stand in God's presence. You need to have clean hands. And that has to do with behavior. The deeds of your life, what you've done and will do must be without any stain of sin whatsoever. You have to have a pure heart. That means you've never had any thoughts that were impure or ungodly. As for idolatry, we're told in the Bible that covetousness is idolatry. So this means you can have never coveted anything. Sworn deceitfully, your every word has been absolutely true and free from any deceit whatsoever. No one even gets one out of those four. If you think you got one of them, uh, then you at least fall into the deceitful category. I mean, this is a closed door kind of a situation. David failed in all of those ways just in the episode with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. The man after God's own heart did not himself have a pure heart. Nevertheless, David and a procession brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Later, the disciples and a great procession, a procession rather, followed Jesus into the temple. How could they if they didn't meet these qualities? Well, verse 5 says, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Verse 5 is the key. It's on account of the righteousness of God that you receive from his salvation. You receive blessing from the Lord. If you believe him for salvation, he gives you his righteousness. You're not perfect, but he can see you that way and you can thereby be in his presence. Under the terms of the old covenant, the high priest could by the shedding of lambs go through the veil and enter into the Holy of Holies to represent all of Israel. Coming out from God's presence, the people received blessing from the Lord. In the new covenant, at the death of Jesus, the Lamb of God, the veil leading into the Holy of Holies was torn. Now all who believe in Jesus live in the very presence of God and are in fact the temple of God. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and we are thus enjoying the blessing of God. And so you don't meet the prerequisites on your own. They're not works you can perform in order to make yourself right with God. It isn't that you do them and it makes you righteous. It's that you're righteous and therefore you're seen that way. God declares you right and then sees you perfect as he goes about perfecting you day by day. As you know, I like to think about this in terms of clothing, in terms of a dress code. Uh, It seems to make things simple for people. 
Some of you might recall the flip-flop flub. Anybody heard that term before? It's in the news. It led to the flip-flop flub flap. I'm not making this up. It's, it's too intelligent for me. In 2005, not that long ago, a fashion faux pas caused an uproar when several players on the Northwestern University Championship women's lacrosse team wore flip-flops to a ceremony at the White House. Now, the White House never said anything official, but most people thought it was in, in poor form uh, for those young ladies to have uh, flip-flops on at the White House. There is a strict dress code for being in the presence of Jesus. You must wear what the Bible describes as the white robe of his righteousness. Can't be purchased or merited in any way. Can only be given to you as a gift by the Lord. It is given as a gift to whosoever will believe on him. Jesus takes upon himself your sin and he gives you in exchange his righteousness represented by this garment, the robe. This imputed righteousness is how a person may stand in the presence of God. Verse six, this is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Selah. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Then Jacob had the sons who became the patriarchs of Israel's 12 tribes. In this Psalm, Jacob is short for Israel. It's, he stands for the whole nation. Remember, this Psalm was written for and sung at the procession returning the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, looking around at what is described elsewhere as all Israel. Imagine yourself maybe on the wall and 10,000s of people are around there as the ark is coming back. And wherever you look, there's Jews. You could look out and say, this is Jacob. And not just a bunch of Jews gathered together for a holiday, but Israel at its very best with the king that God had chosen in the city that he loves, bringing back the ark of his presence. It was a great moment in, in history and especially in Jewish history and there would have been a sense, a rightful sense of pride to look out and say, this is Jacob. Too bad it couldn't always be that way for them. If you follow college football, and who doesn't, uh, you know the famous chant of Penn State. The stadium erupts with, we are Penn State. That's it, but it, it just goes on and on and on. We are Penn State. Imagine 100,000 people shouting that. I'd leave if I was the opposing team, and that's the idea. The words of the psalm are like chanting, we are Jacob. It's the, at the first prophetic fulfillment of the psalm, uh, the nation was initially excited, but not its leaders. It could have been a generation of believers, but Jacob officially rejected Jesus. A mystery was then revealed. Jesus would ascend to heaven for a time while the good news of imputed righteousness by grace through faith went out to the Gentile nations of the world. The resulting believers would be known collectively as the church and our time on earth as the church age. And then another mystery was revealed. Uh, I've given us a mashup between 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians uh, where Paul writes, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality and thus we shall always be with the Lord. 
The church will be resurrected and raptured prior to the Lord's second coming. In fact, we will return with him. What Adam and Eve did was not a minor flip-flop flap. Our nakedness, representing guiltless purity, was replaced by guilt and impurity, illustrated by our original parents sewing themselves garments. Since the garden, mankind has mimicked Adam and Eve by sewing garments of religion and philosophy and psychology. You can look at any of these things, uh, take any particular religion or philosophy, and boil it down to what they essentially believe is necessary for you to be saved or go to the next level or however they want to put it. And you can imagine it as a garment that they, that they wear. Uh, the trouble is, the most beautiful garment ever in the most right religion ever, the Jewish high priest, is seen from heaven as filthy rags uh, in terms of personal righteousness, and it needs to be exchanged for righteousness. And so how could any man-made religion do any better? It's also interesting that uh, a lot of religions have a kind of costume or an outfit, isn't that you know, you go to Disneyland or someplace and you see these guys walking around with saffron robes or even Catholic priests in their garb and different people. It's uh, Tuesday is holy, by the way. Did you know that? H-O-L-I. How many of you are planning on taking the day off for holy? My calendar has all kinds of crazy religious holidays on it. And tomorrow, uh, Tuesday is holy, which is a Hindu celebration. And so maybe, you know, in the uh, name of, uh, you know, equanimity or whatever, which that's the wrong word, but I can't think of the right word. At least I know it. I still, yeah, I still know I don't know the right word. Uh, maybe tell your boss you're taking the, the holiday. And, you, you know, you're going to be out with your Hindi friends and <laughs> celebrating which, whatever they do. Anyway, never mind about that, but I have no idea what I'm talking about. But they outer garments. And it's, it's, it's just symbolic of the fact that they're, they're saying, hey, this is how you get saved. This is how you go to heaven or nirvana or wherever you think you're going. But the only garment that will get you there is the robe of righteousness, and it must be given to you by Jesus Christ. Now, secondly, in verses 7 through 10, you're heard roaring at the king's return. Now, most of you probably know that the, broad, uh, the drawbridge of Sleeping Beauty's castle is actually functional. It has only been raised twice. Once in 1955, when I was born, uh, no, it was for the grand opening of Disneyland. I'm going to quit with the jokes now. And then in 1983, for the rededication of Fantasyland, all I can hope for is that someone's cell phone will go off. David wanted music and lyrics that would coincide with the opening of these gates. Think of it as a great crowd performing a scripted musical performance in conjunction with the gates. We need to read it all through to get the feel. And you'll recognize that we've made a song out of this and a great song it is. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. The King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up your everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. And I don't want to ruin this with detail, but there are some things we need to point out. The gates and the doors being lifted means they were strong, heavy grates that could be lowered down grooves on each side of a gateway to block it. Their heads were the top. And so it's just a poetic way of describing their opening from ground to top as the Ark of the Covenant approached and as the shouting was done. Now, the Ark, you'll recall from Exodus, was more than a representation of God's presence. His presence actually dwelt there. Everlasting doors express their desire to always have God present among them, 
always in their midst, always God with them. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. David was fresh off a victory against the Philistines when he brought the ark back. He had no trouble giving the Lord credit for the win. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. Listen to what the Lord said to David about the battle with the Philistines. Here's his strategy. This is from 2 Samuel 5. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord and he said, you shall not go up, circle around behind them and come up upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly for then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. God had some odd strategies in the Old Testament, and this was one of them. And so David inquired of the Lord, always a good idea. And the Lord said, I don't want you to go up as you normally would or as you have strategized. Circle behind your enemy, come in front of some mulberry trees, and just hang out there until you hear marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, and then you'll know that I've given you the victory. Wow. That all sounds so great when you're reading it or hearing it and you think, wow, the Lord, but imagine going to that strategy session, David and his generals all together. I mean, those were bad dudes. I mean, these guys, David's mighty man and David, a, a warrior laying out his plans. He says, guys, you see these mulberry trees here? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to circle behind and come out and stand in front of the mulberry trees. And then uh, we're going to hear some marching in the treetops. And uh, then we'll know that we have the victory. Okay. And then think about being his general, his army. And there's a lot of trust involved in this kind of thing. And so, nevertheless, uh, somebody marched on the treetops. And that sounds really supernatural to me. In his first coming, Jesus battled Satan and demons, posting a W each time. At the cross, in what looked like a victory for evil, he triumphed. His death as a substitute defeated death and sin and Satan once and for all. At his second coming, Jesus is going to be victorious as well. I'm going to read a long section of Revelation, but it's just, if there's something that you want to read every day to encourage you, this would do it. Uh, beginning in Revelation 19:11. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except God himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's us, by the way. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. I saw the beast the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. The beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and those who worshiped his image. Those two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. The rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse 
and all the birds were filled with their flesh. In summary, mighty in battle. What an understatement, really. Mighty in battle at his second coming. One source said that the Lord of hosts appears 235 times as a name of God. Hosts is armies, and these are angelic armies. At his first coming, Jesus let it be known that he could at any time call upon legions of angels, and angels figure prominently in the years leading up to his second coming. Selah. Now, we've encountered that twice in this psalm. No one really knows what it means. For one thing, it's not translated. It is transliterated. It is simply sounded out from Hebrew into English so that we can pronounce it. It is generally accepted that Selah is a musical notation of some sort and that there is, uh, it's there to provide musical direction. Most likely it would be a pause, but again, we're not sure. Some say that it's a pause for reflection. I've heard it taught, pause and think of that, a time of meditation. But in keeping with the action of the psalm, consider this. Think of the scene that this was written for. Uh, and, and this is a good thing. You know, you have to think, why was this written and when was it first sung? Because it'll elevate your understanding of what's going on. Think of tens of thousands of Jewish voices singing these lines and then pausing in silence and then perhaps singing them again louder and then pausing. It would be exhilarating. It would be amazing. And think of this in a reciprocal way where they would say the first statement and then another group would say, who is this king of glory? I mean, they're no, they know they're going to open the gates. Uh, I mean, that's it. But David says, hey, when we get to this point in this musical that we're doing, because there were other psalms, by the way, that were sung at this uh, approach. You can find them in First Chronicles. But uh, David said, hey, at this point, uh, we're probably going to stop before the gates and announce uh, what's happening. And you're going to say, who is this Lord of glory? And then we're going to answer. And then you're going to ask again and, until anticipation build. And then the gates would open and there would be a roar from the crowd. Imagine it. I mean, this is the Ark of the Covenant returning. As I said earlier, the best of Jacob, the best king at the best time with the best kingdom, with the best people, with the Ark. I mean, it's, it's tremendous. It's, it's, it's beyond anything that we could ever ask or, or understand uh, in the Jewish mind. Now think of 10,000 times 10,000 believers singing them as Jesus returns to Jerusalem in the future. We'll be training with him, trailing him as an army uh, in, on white horses. And, and, you know, and this psalm, I think literally, will be sung again. Who is this king of glory? The Lord mighty in battle. It's going to be amazing. A hymnist tried to carry, catch some of this for us today. He said this, and we'll close. 10,000 times 10,000 in sparkling raiment bright. The armies of the ransomed saints throng up the steep of light. Tis finished, all is finished. Their fight with death and sin. Fling open wide the golden gates and let the victors in.